Hi, my name is Amber Pence and welcome to my podcast. This is the first episode of hopefully many more to come that discusses racial disparities in outdoor recreation. I wanted to take a closer look at the environment in the natural leisure world and examine my own experiences with current research in the field. I finished my associate's degree in wildland fire management from Southwestern Oklahoma State University and decided to continue my education at SWASU and receive my bachelor's degree in Parks and Recreation Management, where I focused on natural resource management. Honestly, I had a great experiences and my classes consisted of either biology-based science courses or courses that were recreation-based, such as wilderness survival, scuba diving, and alpine rescue. I mean, how could that not be a great time, right? I had the best of both worlds, science and fun. But it got me thinking, out of all of my classmates, out of everyone who I spent countless hours with hiking up mountains and discussing how to best manage rangelands, how diverse was this setting? The short answer to that question is not very. Most of my classmates were white males. But why was this the case? Why were they, pre- they the predominant audience that was interested in parks and recreation management? Well, I took a closer look onto park visitor data throughout the United States, and the numbers spoke for themselves. The U.S. National Wildlife Refuge reported that 96% of their visitor population is white, and the National Park Service reported 95% visitor population is white. And I liked the way that the Forest Service reported their findings. They deemed it as an inequity gap between races, which came close to almost 24%. Honestly, this shocked me. But when I actually thought about it, it really wasn't that shocking. I mean, I spent, like I said, all of these hours in these classes with, you know, the same 30 people every time. And like I said, almost everybody was white. So this brought me to this podcast. I really wanted to take a closer look as to why this was the way that it was. Why recreation, specifically outdoor recreation, is predominantly white across the United States. So first, I'm going to start off with the creation of recreation. Naturally, humans found their own way to recreate throughout history. But I wanted to really focus on the United States And the first officially recognized playground in the United States was built in 1885 in Boston, which was basically just a giant sand pit. But hey, that would have been my favorite place in the world as a kid. And then from there, in the early 1900s, playgrounds became more intricate. They were expanded and became more structurally sound, so to say. They were located in a more park setting and not just in the middle of Boston City. In the middle 1900s, the CCC, or the Civilian Conservation Corps, created even more recreation areas during the Great Depression um, all throughout the United States. And so we kind of saw this more structured and formal creation of public recreation and entertainment. So all of this is great, right? I mean, kids were exerting energy, people were finding jobs, building natural landscape structures and roads and trails and parks, clearing out caves and caverns for tourism. These are good things. 
But we have to keep in mind that the United States was still deeply segregated and racial prejudice was running rampant still. So I wanted to find specific examples of where non-white people were expected to spend their free time. And so the first place that I came across was Jones Lake, and it was the first state park established for blacks, which was in 1939, which led me to find the William B. Umstead State Park in Raleigh, North Carolina, but it was actually two segregated parks, one for blacks and one for whites. And then that, that led me to find the North Carolina Teachers Association, which was an organization of black educators, and they donated land to the state which strictly became Hammocks Beach State Park in 1961. So these are great things, too. You know, we have these quote-unquote safe areas um, for, for people of color during these segregated times, but as we know from our own history as a nation, separate places do not mean equal spaces. So as we keep in mind that public beaches, parks, and pools, what have you, they didn't desegregate until after the Civil Rights Act. So not all minorities could necessarily feel safe visiting these recreation sites. A prime example of this strife before desegregation is from the death of Eugene Williams. He was a black man who was just 17 years old in 1919. And he was killed on Lake Michigan because his raft accidentally floated into water that, you know, was deemed to be whites only. So from this, white beachgoers, who they specifically pointed to one main man, but we don't quite know for sure, they started throwing stones and rocks at him for floating into their, you know, imaginary borders. And eventually, they struck him on the head with a big rock and it forced him to fall into the water had a brain injury, and unfortunately it caused him to drown and he died. This started a huge uproar. Protests erupted all across Chicago, and this, along with some other contributors, exploded into the Chicago race riot of 1919. We can see some similar, similar strife in the relationship between Indian tribes and the National Park Service and the removal of the tribes on their sacred land for the sake of park creation. You know, these are sacred lands that have, they've been there, you know, as long as they can remember. And then John Moore or other, you know, federal entities, they come in and forcibly remove them. Presidents deem them not worthy of this land. And so they get sent to reservations elsewhere. And then, yeah, these, these parks are essentially made for white entertainment and ironically enough, these Indian tribes and their history, their stories, aren't even included in the so-called novel documentary by Ken Burns titled The National Parks, America's Best Idea, which I actually was obsessed with um, about a year ago. I had to watch it for one of my natural resource management classes, and it was in incredibly interesting, um, but... After reading another article, I, I don't think that we can say that Ken Burns really gave Indian tribes their, their due here. Even today, there are remnants of swastikas carved into rock formations and racially offensive trail names in Colorado that in 2020 still remained unchanged. And 
not that I can experience this, but I'm sure it doesn't help alleviate any of that anxiety of staying safe in recreation areas. In fact, this just correlates even further to just earlier this year in 2021, when a black man named Christopher Cooper was subject to blatant racism in New York's Central Park. A white woman essentially confronted him um, after he asked her and requested, you know, that she leash her dog up while she was inside the park, as any responsible dog owner would. Um, and she basically verbally assaulted him and did not appreciate him politely asking her to just put her dog back on her leash. And so even today, it's clear that the leisure that people seek in outdoor spaces is not as attainable to a person of color as it is for white people. Other factors such as socioeconomic status, cultural differences, discrimination, and even institutional racism lie beneath the formation of a disproportionate setting for outdoor visitors. According to researchers at North Carolina State University, people of color tend to have higher unemployment rates combined with lower income levels, which often leads to less access for disposable income to recreation sites. Researchers also question that if income levels were in fact the same, would people of color participate more in outdoor rec like their white counterparts? Why would people who have historically been marginalized and abused willingly visit spaces that were founded upon the same beliefs that their own ostracization was rooted in? Would this make recreation culturally relevant for other groups? That's a difficult question to answer and definitely one that I can't provide. But it can be easily agreed upon that these are questions that must be asked in order to bridge the gap between race and recreation. Speaking of culturally relevant, when compared to white Americans, those who identify as Black, Latino, Asian, Pacific Islander, or Native American, they have differences in access to public lands based on income, um, location, upbringing, etc. You know, there are different constraints to outdoor recreation, and therefore they attach different meanings to places and activities and even have different outdoor recreation patterns and motivations. Here's an example of culturally relevance from Raul Arizari, who works on the Bridgeport Waterfront Project. Uh, being outdoors was a complicated thing. So uh, you can be outdoors, and sometimes you can be in the wrong place at the wrong time, or there could be some, uh, let's say, law enforcement person who's there and, uh, you're, and trying to really take up that space back um, in the outdoors. So it was never something that uh, it was kind of safe for us to do uh, unless we retreated to the park, you know. So that's more of um, the outdoor experience we had. It was like the park for our retreat or our safe haven from, from the streets. Additionally, Moon Young Kao, whose parents were immigrants from South Korea, explains how her parents had a difficult time adjusting to their move to the United States and also describes what natural recreation meant to them. If you don't speak the language, if you don't have the right pedigree, people don't view you the same as everyone else. I think nature was kind of their only solace. You know, it's, it was one of those places where you could go where you didn't feel, you didn't feel isolated. With multiple differences in cultural relevance and what people relate to recreation with their motivations and activities, 
We need to be able to cater to everybody. And experts anticipate that by 2044, for the first time in American history, the United States is expected to be a majority-minority nation. And if recreation professionals are unable to match management techniques with rapid demographic changes, then they risk ignoring and alienating a sizable portion of the population. So with various different backgrounds and ethnicities and just a multitude of people to cater to, it leads us to ask the question, is it even realistic to be able to meet everybody's needs? That's a pretty good question, and we'll dive into it. Many scholars of outdoor recreation suggest that agencies should partner with local city officials or community-based organizations, universities, and schools to even hire more racially diverse staff for natural resource and environmental science programs. Additionally, they suggest that working with schools to provide child and adult education programs that are much more than just nature awareness, um, that include topics that are incredibly more relevant to environmental issues on the local level, and they say that this is essential. Even discussing how to engage racial minority populations through social media and broadcast electronic communications. From his 2000 study, D.J. Chavez says that professionals shouldn't be afraid to be innovative. In his work called Invite, Include, and Involve Racial Groups in Leisure, he states that professionals can utilize storytelling methods, planning, and decision-making decision strategies that move beyond just outreach, and they help build and restore relationships with minority communities. In a study titled Investing in Equitable Urban Park Systems by Matthew Eldridge, Kimberly Burroughs, and Patrick Foster, they describe and review the benefits of parks, including but not limited to the reduction of obesity, beneficial effects on mental health and cognitive develop development, and even positive social interactions that lead to better health and well-being overall. They also contribute to sustainability and help mitigate environmental challenges and rebuild resiliency through green infrastructure. They use nature-based solutions to address environmental and health challenges, such as stormwater flood management, air quality improvement, and the diffusion of urban heat island effect. Additionally, parks just serve as important community links. They connect residents with jobs, opportunities, and even each other. There's an amazing benefit of social interaction. And when park officials make intentional efforts to collaborate with communities with programs, parks themselves can foster social cohesion and collective ownership of a public space, which is essential for developing thriving public spaces. Eldridge, Burroughs, and Spouster also claim that due to the barriers, barriers that low-income communities and neighborhoods face, it is integral that park departments and local leaders actively identify where park inequity exists, take steps to address it, and include it as part of the funding for conversations. Another key point is that access and proximity to parks is important for unlocking the benefits for their users and visitors. In a 2012 Walker and Compton study, research shows that people living further away from parks are less likely to use them, and one study found out that a 30% decline in parks' likelihood for use for users living more than three-quarters of a mile from it. Overall, parks need to be inclusive, 
and have welcoming landscaping, programming, and features that enhance real and perceived safety. The successful creation and maintenance of strong park systems can encourage economic prosperity, especially in low-income or disinvested communities. Perhaps the continued development of urban parks is the key piece or the missing stepping stone needed to bringing together minority communities with outdoor recreation areas. At the end of this podcast, I also wanted to include some nonprofit and other organizations that help bring youth in other communities to outdoor recreation. The first is City Kids Wilderness Project, and it's a nonprofit organization founded on the belief that providing enriching life experiences for the DC children can enhance their lives, the lives of their families, and the greater community. Since its founding in 1996, the founder, Randy Lusky, started City Kids as an experimental program, and it teaches children how to be prepared for life beyond learning possible in a traditional classroom. It provides the D.C. youth with life-changing opportunities to help them learn, grow, and build the skills that they need to set goals and work for their dreams. The second organization that I wanted to mention is called Outdoor Afro, and it's where black people and nature meet. On their website, you can select the state or region that you live in and find communities near you where you can also apply to be a needed leader for the organization. They reach over 130,000 people per day and change the narrative of who engages in the outdoor by posting thousands of photos and stories. They advocate for connecting black people to the outdoors and even reimagining blackness in the outdoors while, of course, protecting the outdoors and being very prominent in the Leave No Trace movement. The third group I wanted to mention is Diversify Outdoors, and they promote diversity in outdoor recreation and conservation. They promote diversity in outdoor spaces where BIPOC, LGBTQ+, and other diverse identities have historically been marginalized in silence. They are passionate about promoting equality and access to the outdoors for all, And that also includes being body positive and celebrating different skill levels and abilities, which isn't always talked about in outdoor recreation. Additionally, some other social media pages that I found were Natives Outdoors, Latino Outdoors, Outdoor Asian, Leading Ladies Africa, Black Outdoor Adventures, and Outdoor Voices Podcast. Then you can find those pages on Instagram. So with all of this being said... You know, historical events, personal testimonies, data. Is there, where do we go from here? You know, it it is evident that there's a substantial amount of research into diverse servitude and even how people of color feel towards this subject. But is this a problem that can be solved? And if so, how can we really help fix it? Will it just continue to take years for hundreds of you know, or a couple of centuries and hundreds of years of racial tension to just finally dissolve? Or can we help speed it up in some way? Not only with the outdoor education programs and nonprofit organizations that I mentioned earlier, some cities are implementing the urban parks that I discussed as well, including our very own Oklahoma City where they have created Scissor Tail Park, and they're actually expanding and should open their second half next summer in 2022. There may not be one guaranteed solid answer, 
to benefit everybody and be implemented across the nation. But there are key components that can definitely help. And if we provide opportunities, the demand is going to be there. And we need to meet people where they are. City parks need to become more visible in the outdoors. And there needs to be more exposure in that regard. First-time park goers need to be helped to make more comfortable. Some people just don't have experience, and that's okay. They may not know how to prepare or what to bring for their first hiking trip or, you know, if they need to bring their own food for their first time camping. We need to reach out and make sure that people know that it's okay to ask these questions and not to feel embarrassed. We just want them to be included. We also need to help people visualize themselves in the parks themselves. They may be called public lands, but they can seem a bit exclusive, like a country club. Another good one is don't believe the myths. When people say that black people can't swim, it just makes my blood curdle. I was a competitive swimmer for over 12 years, and this couldn't be further from the truth. It's the same for hiking. You know, everybody does everything because everybody likes something. Sure, we did have the whole conversation about cultural relevance and all of that fun stuff. But we also have to know that people are able to have their own interests and opinions. We don't want to limit people's ability to go outdoors and recreate. And maybe most importantly, we need to acknowledge that every experience counts. Near or far, they all matter. We need to help people feel that who they are and what they're bringing to that area is completely acceptable there. With all of that being said, that can just help it all come home. Eventually, people will notice that there's certain things in the outdoor world and recreational sites that we don't have in urban settings and that will help promote the change that we need. Through all of my research and scaring through additional podcasts and interviews and even talking to people on my own, I definitely learned a thing or two. And even though white privilege is definitely a popular topic of conversation in 2021, I never really applied my privilege to outdoor recreation itself. I kind of only limited it to interactions with the police and regard for the law, basically. But it branches so much wider and deeper than that. And I, I think that we need to stray f- away from the negative connotation that a lot of people put with white privilege. And instead of being embarrassed or ashamed or even enraged about it, we need to use that fuel and help change the narrative and make it so that everybody else has equal opportunities in all aspects of life, even the ones that are supposed to provide us solace and entertainment and recreation and, you know, that break from the everyday world because that's what we need. That's what helps us be. I couldn't imagine a world where I couldn't just feel comfort walking through my park, or even at my job. That's where I go to find my peace and think and meditate and find me. And I'm incredibly blessed that I have that and I don't have to worry about the color of my skin interfering with that luxury. I hope you found this podcast just as informative as I did and maybe even sparked a new creative idea of how we can help continue to make recreation and the outdoors more inclusive for all. Thanks for listening and go be outdoors.